Good morning, church. A little bit louder. Be blessed. This is wonderful to be here uh, for the second week in a row. And it really is a delight for myself and for my family, my growing family. The little ones is asleep there, so I'll try to be really quiet. So if I drift into like a little bit of a whisper, just incline your ear, okay? Uh, my name is uh, Reverend Peter Fast, and it is wonderful to be back here at Cross Church. And I work for uh, Bridges for Peace. And for those of you, of you who may not know me or what Bridges for Peace is, there's a literature table out the back, uh, and you can take things there. But what Bridges for Peace does is it's a, we're a Christian organization that bridges the gap between Christians and Jews, showing them unconditional love and Christ-like love. Uh, for many Jewish people in history, it's been a, quite a rocky relationship uh, in regards to uh, living near or beside Christians, interacting with Christians. And there's a lot of fear, suspicion, maybe anger, bitterness, different things like that in a filter they look through. And also many Christians look through a filter when it comes to Jewish people. And, and so we're reaching out to them uh, with a genuine love, without strings attached, and just showing them the love of God. And we do this through many different programs. We do this through building relationships with them, verbally, of course. Uh, but we have incredible programs. One of them, which is our flagship program, our food program. We deliver between 60 to 70 tons of food in Israel a day, uh, feeding over 22,000 people. So it's an incredible thing. Our, the, the Bridges for Peace is all over the world, and our Canadian office is right here in, uh, in Winnipeg. Um, just before I get started on uh, today's message, I want to also put in another plug for this. This is a big event coming up in April. Masab Hassan Yosef, uh, his uh, father was the, founding, uh, the founder of the terrorist organization Hamas. And uh, Masab was a radical uh, Islamic terrorist. And on his way to commit a terror attack, he was captured by the Israelis. Um, he ended up going to prison. And when he was in prison, he saw other Hamas members of the same organization he was part of, uh, mistreating and being very brutal and horrific uh, in their actions to his fellow Palestinian Arabs. And this was something that really clicked with him and uh, really led him to believe and see the reality that he had built his life on hate. He hated Jews, he hated Israel, he hated Westerners. And uh, this led to him working for the Israelis uh, to stop terror attacks between 1997 and 2007. And in that process, he also gave his heart to Jesus. And uh, he wrote a bestseller, uh, best-selling book called Son of Hamas. And when he kind of came out with that book, um, Al-Qaeda put a death warrant on his head. He fled and he lives in the U.S. He speaks all over the world. And uh, he is an, an amazing high-profile person to just coming from a very unique life of, of someone who is part of terrorism and then a, it really a, like a spy network as well for Israel, and then gave his heart to the Lord. So there's some posters out there. You're not going to want to miss that event, April 23rd at the Fort Gary. Now, I want to recap a little bit about uh, last week. Uh, last week, we as yoked to God's word for life. And today, we're on part two of Psalm 119, um, enemies and our personal lives. But I want to recap a little bit about last week, because I know we're reading through the Bible in this year. And that is incredibly important. But if, if that's all you do, then you've missed uh, the, the, the full fruit of what the scriptures has to offer, which this is a life commitment. That's what the Lord wants from you. He doesn't just want 
one hour a week or one day a week. He wants a, it's a life commitment. And so read your Bible to the end of this year and then read it again and then read it again and read it again because we're a light for the Lord. He chooses us. He doesn't need us to do whatever we do, to do whatever he wants to do. He certainly doesn't need us, but he chooses. He calls us. He called that team to Burundi. He calls you to be a light to your friends, to be a light in this fellowship, to be in this city, wherever you go, he calls you and he empowers you, but he won't force you. It's a heart issue. So the answers are right here. The Holy Spirit will lead you, but it's a heart issue. And when we look at the word and recapping from last week, the word prevents shame. It draws us close to God. It reveals the state of our sin. It shows us what we must do to be saved. It is the Torah. It's the revelation, instruction, and law. And when you look at Torah, it's the spirit of life. The Bible shows you your need to be saved. It shows you how to live. It's a spirit of life, but it is also a spirit of death because it condemns. It shows that we can't be perfect. We can't earn merit. We need a savior. We must thirst for the word, strive to follow it, saturate our lives in it. It is worth more than all the gold of the world. And here's a quote regarding Paul and what Paul thought of the Torah. And this comes from a book, Paul the Jewish Theologian by Brad Young. It says, the term Torah expresses the highest dimension of Jewish experience because it reveals the nature of God to his people. Torah encompasses all that is known about God and his love for each individual created in the divine image. Paul possesses a passion for Torah as the quintessential self-disclosure of God and the divine will. Its preeminent purpose is found in Jesus the Messiah because, as Paul declares, now the Gentiles have been grafted into the olive tree, Romans 10.4. He glories in his ministry as the Jewish apostle to the pagan nations. For Paul... Torah has not lost its force after the coming of Jesus, but now Jews and Gentiles occupy their distinctive positions in the mystery of God's higher plan. It's an incredible thing to have the word of God. Now we're going to zero in on two aspects. So last week we talked about the importance of the word, 176 verses, uh, sorry, 176 verses, 180 times it mentions uh, the word or commandments or Torah, it reflects God's word. And if you look through your Bible, it's also broken up into 20, the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And 22 stanzas of eight verses each. And that's a, it's an incredible thing. But David isn't just engaged in stressing the importance of the word. He's not just telling you the scriptures are good. He is, number one, crying out to God and engaging with God through his word against real and traumatic things happening in his life. This is the ultimate demonstration of taking your burdens or casting your burdens and petitions to God. What is David facing? Now, you you may be facing uh, things, but maybe not to this category. Hope you're not facing it to this category. If you are, you need to go to the police. But for David's case, he he was facing people who wanted to kill him. People who wanted to ruin him, topple him as king, smear his name, destroy his family. 
The second thing that we take from Psalm 119 is David is thanking God. He's praising him and acknowledging the personal and practical applications of Scripture, its benefits, its wisdom, and fulfillment of following it and walking in tune with its truth. And this draws him closer to God, and it demonstrates how he he and we should live righteously. So ultimately, David is asking for God's blessings. Now, we have nothing to offer God, really. God is everywhere. He's all-powerful. He knows everything like he's God. I mean, he delights in us when we praise his name, but we don't. He he doesn't lack anything that we could give him. You know, like if I had a million dollars and you lack a million dollars, I could give you that million. But we have nothing that God needs. But when we cry out, God, bless me, bless us, what are we asking for? We're asking for God to pour out his abundance on us, to, uh, to reveal himself to us, to meet us. And that is a delight to him. Because I can bless you. I can bless you physically. I can even bless you spiritually by speaking into your life and saying wonderful things and encouraging you or helping you. But for God, I mean, it's revealing himself. So, David had enemies. Much of Psalm 119 is filled with David's pleas, petitions, and appeals to God because of the activity, the hardships, and the influence David's enemies have had on his life. He's really struggling here. And we really struggle with uh, enemies or opponents or strife or all kinds of things. And that's what we're going to delve into. Now, during David's time, his enemies consisted of the Philistines. So hopefully nobody here has Philistines chasing after them. Okay, or members of his own family. Now, that might strike a chord. I know people who, who their faith has caused division in their family. You know, even Jesus said that. Now, in the lifetime of the prophets, the enemies of Israel consisted of the Assyrians or the Babylonians, the time of Jonah, Isaiah, Hezekiah. During the time of the disciples, the enemies of Israel were the Romans. And we know this, I mean, you, you read about it in the Gospels and Acts. Um, Jesus was crucified. This is a horrific torture implement, this tool that the Romans do. They crucify people. They're enemies. Now, I'm not saying this is for sure, but in the future, in a galaxy far, far away, our enemies could look like this. If anybody encounters the real thing, you know, you could watch the films, I guess, and figure out what to do. But there are enemies around us, right? And, I mean, hopefully they don't look like this. Maybe they look like this in our imagination, Um, But what is our response when we face enemies? All jokes aside, when we face opponents, what is our response? Now, obviously, the scriptures tell us to to love our neighbor. You know, you don't hate your enemy. Don't hate someone. Jesus says that to hate someone in your heart is like committing murder. I mean, that's like some pretty powerful stuff. I mean, then it's like every one of us to, you lust in your heart is like committing adultery to be envious and proud, like all of these things, like that really shakes every one of us to the core because pretty much every single one of us has struggled and fallen in some of these ways. But what is our response? These are the people, these are the people who cause us strife. They slander us. They gossip about us. They envy us and show it. They despise us. And maybe it's publicly or privately. They harass us. Opponents, people we struggle with. What about enemies from within? The church. Maybe our workplace. 
maybe friends or family. And there's a Hebrew expression, loshan chora, and that uh, relates to evil talk. You know, it's like when somebody gossips about somebody else. Like, have you ever, maybe you have like a, uh, you have a friend and you met somebody else and you didn't like them. So then you tell your friend, yeah, this person is like this. And then your friend may meet this person for the first time. Never talked to them, never met them. And what is, what's the impression you have of that person? You, you have these thoughts planted in your head and you will treat them like what, you know, when in fact the person that told you those things could be completely wrong. But you will treat that person maybe with disdain because you believe it. So the power of, of these things. Psalm 34, 13 says, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Proverbs 12, 18, There is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. Proverbs 17, 4, An evildoer gives heed to false lips. A liar listens eagerly to a spiteful tongue. James 3, 5 to 8. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. You might not have known that. That little thing in your mouth, it can be unruly and a deadly poison. Toxic if we don't walk in the light of the Lord. What is David's response against his enemies? Very simple. Go back to God's word. That is what we see when we read Psalm 119. I'm not going to read all of these, so don't worry. But look at this. All of these verses deal with David and his enemies, opponents, family, anguish, crying out to help, for help from God. David asking God to act on the wicked and judgment, righteous judgment. So like I said last week, you know, a Hebrew scholar, when, I mean, you don't even have to be a Hebrew scholar. When you see a pattern like this, this is something to take note of. This is something to take note of. In verse 21 of Psalm 119, it says, You rebuke the proud, the cursed, who stray from your commandments. The context of this seems to imply they have the commandments, these people, these opponents, they, or they know of them, but they're deliberately living against them. Verse 42, so shall I have an answer for, for him who reproaches me. What's the answer? David says, for I trust in your word. He doesn't just try to come up with something and write on a chalkboard and no, that's not going to work and write, oh no, that's not going to work. He goes back to the word. That's how he answers people who reproach him. And in verse 85 to 86, the proud have dug pits for me, which is not according to your law. All your commandments are faithful they persecute me wrongfully. Help me. Help me. The enemies of David, though they would profess loyalty to the Torah, their fellow Jews, many of them, they resort to means which violate its precepts of love, truth, and justice in order to persecute. And the same thing happens within the church. The same thing happens within families, friendships, workplaces, we, uh, we know people who, who read this 
and say, yes, I follow it. Jesus is in my heart, but they're vicious in their words. They don't live according to its statutes. Because this isn't going to guarantee you a perfect life. It's not even going to guarantee you become a believer. There have been people that read this from cover to cover and say, nope, they reject God. Absolutely not. I don't want God. Because it's a heart issue. God reveals himself and he extends that hand, but man has to reach out. We see that light and we don't want that light so many times. So how many of you have experienced this from fellow professing Christians or someone else? And in particular, I say fellow professing Christians for our situation because David's situation was fellow Israelites. That was one of the main obstacles that came against him. Fellow Israelites, they had the word. Same with him. They should know it. They should know better. But for us, fellow Christians, fellow professing Christians, and sometimes people who come against us can be from within. Whether they are truly believers or not, this can be incredibly hurtful and damaging. But we must always remember this. Psalm 35, 28. And my tongue shall speak of your righteousness and of your praise all day long. Before you react. Before you react. Before you have that thought. Quench that thought and focus on God. Sing his praises because that light will emanate. Now, let's look at the church for a second. The church is not an organization. The church is not an organization. It's not a club. It's an organism. It's a body. Ephesians 5.23, For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Colossians 1.18, And he is the head of the body, the church, Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence? Now, when a part of the body comes under attack, it can be horrific and sometimes catastrophic to the church. But what are we to do when someone claims to have the scripture and revere it and yet violates its very fabric? Well, there's lots of things. First, we pray for them. We love them. Those are the the immediate responses that we should feel. And I mean, there's, it's a, there's a war. The flesh, the old nature does not want to do that. But the Bible outlines a number of things. In Matthew chapter 18, 15 to 17, Jesus' words talk about, you know, if a brother sins against you, go and, and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Don't make it public. And it says, if he hears you, you have gained your brother. Well, he's only going to hear you if you come with love. I mean, that's like 101. If you come and just like, you know, ream somebody out and call them names because they did something to you, they're not going to hear you or you will completely crush them and they'll probably never want to talk to you again. But you come with love. And there's, it's, it's incredible when you read through that passage. It's like, if, but if that doesn't work, take two or three, go to him. If that doesn't work, bring him before the church and the church should appeal to him. Like, this is, these are expressions of love because we want to res- people to have their honor restored. We want people to have the light. We want correction in our own lives and other people. The final thing is, I mean, once this is the heart issue. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. 2 Timothy uh, 4.2 says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, uh, 
Exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. Rebuke. Restore honor. That's what it means. And I preached on that last week uh, briefly. Restore honor. That's what you want for someone. If you were in the same boat, if, the, if you were in their shoes, you would want the same. I mean, most people don't want to be alienated from a community or their, fr- their family. Most people, even non-Christians, want to have gaps and wounds healed. Most people. That's like built within us. We don't like to be separated unless you really feel like you want to be a hermit. But that it, we want to be with people. We want to be in good communion. So restore honor. Pray. Love. Talk to them. Accept them. Uh, reach out to them so that they may be restored. There's this whole process of what we do to people within the body and for healing to take place. So the second thing, pure living as a result of keeping God's word. Like I said at the beginning, David isn't just saying, yes, the Bible's awesome. He is also relaying and showing us how to live, how it affects our life. First of all, I'll give you a couple examples, and these are all in 119. So verse 9, how can we cleanse our ways? Taking heed according to God's word. That's how we can be clean. That's how we can cleanse our ways. Verse 11, hiding the word of God in our heart so we may not sin. This isn't like suppressing it so nobody else sees it. This is a treasure. It's hiding it within us, protecting it, not wanting to lose it. David's plea is for God to incline his heart to his word and not to covetousness. David wants God and his word, and he wants it to become a heart issue, and he doesn't want to covet. He doesn't want to want anything else, just this, just this heart. 37, he says, turn my eye away from worthless things and revive me in God's way. Worthless things, things that are a complete waste of time, a distraction. And then he says in verse 60, to make haste in obeying the Lord. Now, sometimes, you know, we we realize we did something wrong and we pray. But the harder thing sometimes is going to the person, eating humble pie, swallowing your pride when you've wounded someone, is going to them and saying, I have done wrong. I have slandered you. I've done this, or I thought ill of you, or I said these things. Forgive me. Humbling. It's like crawling. You know, forgive me. And the scripture says, make haste. Don't drag your feet. Don't say, I'm going to think about it for a couple months and see if this is right, or I'll pray about it. It's very obvious if you did something wrong, you don't have to really pray about it to see if it was wrong or right. It's like you're looking for a way out. But make haste in obeying the Lord. 65 to 66, David asks the Lord to teach him good judgment and knowledge according to the commandments. And if you read from 67 to 75, we see an interesting thing here. David says that before his affliction, he went astray. But now he keeps God's word. The affliction, it's a, the affliction was a good thing. So see, he's acknowledging. How many of us love affliction? I mean, like you wake up in the morning, good bowl of affliction, you know, just eat. You know, just, oh, that's so good. No, David said, He was going astray before his affliction. Then he was afflicted and he praises God for it. Because this is the interesting thing. His affliction was good because it helped him learn God's 
statutes. His guilt and his righteous conviction stirred within him, and this affliction brought him to God's word. He says it was God's faithfulness that afflicted him, for his judgments are right. That's what David says. Boy, completely opposite of what the world would say. God will sometimes use hardships for us to draw us closer and deeper to him. And consider a father, you know, a father who strives to be righteousness, to be righteous, because there's different people fail as fathers. But a father who disciplines his son with love to correct, because we want that son to understand, that son or daughter, we want him to understand where he went wrong or she went wrong. And we want that restored and we want that, that child to experience love so they grow up showing that to others. So look at David's life. David's sin with Bathsheba. He took another man's wife. Then he tried to hide it and, he, and got Uriah the Hittite killed. Was part of that. And suffered incredibly. The pain he suffered, the death of his firstborn, his broken family. However, he repented with fasting and prayer and returned to God's word. And he publicly made it known. He returned to God's word. That is why David can say, may my heart be blameless regarding your statutes, O God, that one may not be ashamed. In verse 80, 101, he says, my feet have been restrained from every evil way due to keeping God's word. Nothing else. Without God's word, your feet will not be restrained. God's word illuminates what is false. Verse 104. We should hate what is false as God hates what is false. Sin. We don't hate people, but we should hate what is false. 119, verse 119. God judges the wicked. This can be an uncomfortable thing. Judgment. But God judges the wicked. He is faithful. So the nice thing about this is true justice is served. We live in a world where rarely is justice ever served. God wishes that none shall perish. That is absolutely true. He loves the world, but he will judge. And there's not been a moment in history where he has not judged wickedness. Think about it for a moment. If he wouldn't judge, if God would not judge, what would that do to him and his nature? Can you imagine if people in any situation you got away with anything? There'd be no justice. That's a huge gaping hole in a God that we call righteous. If he wouldn't judge, but he does. But at the same time, his mercy is incredible. Well, look what he's given us. Look what he sent his son to do. Look what's offered. David is not rejoicing in the judgment of the wicked as if he's saying they're going to get what's coming. It's not like he has this big grin ear to ear watching them suffer. And he's like, yes, and eating popcorn. That's absolutely not. He's, instead, he's rejoicing in the fact that True justice is above man's injustice. It is built into us to want justice and truth served. Unfortunately, many times that's selfishness and pride are part of that. But people want true justice. But before you think David is rejoicing in the coming judgment of the wicked, read other verses like 136 where it says he weeps. David is weeping for the wicked. The people that are doing this, he cries, he sobs for them. It breaks his heart. And in other passages, we see in verse 124, this is also why he requests the Lord to deal with him in mercy. David knows of God's righteous judgments, and David knows he's a sinner. So he cries out to God, have mercy on me. 
He's not like thinking, you know, I'm all like holier than thou. He's having, have mercy on me, God. In 132 to 133, and this is an incredible passage, we should strive to have no iniquity within us, and we do this by following the Lord and being holy. Now, have you ever neglected something important or lost something, and then you discovered it again? And what is the feeling that courses through your veins when you, like, you find that thing or you remember that thing? It's jubilation, it's praise, it's relief. It's all kinds of things, but you feel fortunate. You're like, yes, you know, like this is a good thing. Maybe you praise God and you should. But this draws our, should draw our attention to some incredible uh, story that we read in 2 Kings 22. Now, Josiah was the king of Judah. He was a righteous king. And uh, Hilkiah the priest discovered the Torah. He found it in the temple, like kind of abandoned. Like, it's like he found the Bible. And he brings it to Josiah and reads to him from the word of God. And Josiah's reaction is to rip his clothes, to tear his clothes. Now, he's not saying like, oh, Hilkiah, you, you horrible person. Why are you here? Like, he, he's tearing it in grief because something so precious has been forgotten. And that he's also failed as a king because the kings of Judah um, were supposed to write out the scriptures by hand in their first year as king. So they were keepers of the Torah, keeper, keepers of God's word. But he obviously hadn't done that. It had been forgotten. But it wasn't just this grief. It, grief turned into joy. And Josiah and the people renewed the covenant. And they destroyed the idolatrous places. And this is the cool thing. Josiah then hosts the greatest Passover with the people. That it says that Israel had ever experienced before. They had this massive feast, a Passover feast, which is centered around the salvation of the Israelites coming out of Exodus and God's supreme power and mercy and being the children of Israel, being worshiping the God of Israel with the Bible and everything. And they have this massive Passover. And that's his response. Finding something that was lost or forgotten about. Romans 16, 25 to 27 this talks about that the scriptures make known the mysteries of God. Isn't that amazing? People who've never read this often struggle to know, know God. Who is God? What, what's going to happen to me after death? Or how should I treat people? Or what about all these other religions? There's a mystery to God when you don't know God, when you don't know about God. But he draws us. And Jesus is able to establish us according to the gospel. In 2 Timothy 1.8 it says, do not be ashamed by the testimony of our Lord. God's testimonies, not the fashionable trends of the rich and powerful, should guide a person through life. Nothing else. How many times do we go to the world for advice? How many times do we go to the world to work out a problem or a solution? Now, truth is truth. So, somebody who isn't a Christian... Uh, just as likely as somebody who is a Christian is capable of speaking the truth, giving honest or sincere godly advice. But this can become our go-to, our self-help digest instead of the Word of God. We read self-help books for encouragement. We listen to celebrity interviews, which we admire. We strive for wealth, 
success, career, power, because a friend, neighbor, or Warren Buffett has it. We toil through financial issues, consulting banks, financial help books, get-rich-quick schemes. We eat healthy because a commercial programmer friend told us to. We agree with an argument because it sounds rational or strikes an emotional chord. We try very hard to be a light for Jesus by our own strength, as if we can save an individual. We get frustrated with a problem that we try to solve ourselves. We try to fix our problems as a parent, spouse, or friend by reading a marriage and parenting book or a post on Facebook. And often, when we stumble as Christians, we try to dig ourselves out of our own mess. Probably every one of us at one time or another has done that or gone to something else other than the Word of God. Now, even though not everything that I listed there is inherently wrong, although there are definitely some things that I mentioned are unhealthy, these things become what is first in our lives or a habit before going to God. We lose the meaning of understanding God's sacrificial love for us when we leave him in the dust. And you know, the thing is, he is our father. You know, you can learn incredible things. God is called Father, and we're children. You know, and then you look at the family unit. Can you imagine never going to your dad or mom and cutting them out of your life except for maybe a brief one-hour chat a week? Now, granted, some families are fragmented. But still, a fragmented family, many people that are in that would yearn for communication, yearn for love. But can you imagine just... Nope, I'll talk to you maybe once a week. There wouldn't be any real relationship there. Maybe that is the case with you or your family or you have someone you know that is in a rough situation like that. And for people that are, they're usually, they can admit, there isn't much of a relationship. But what parent, what parent who truly loved their child wouldn't go across the earth for their son or daughter to show them love and help them? But this is the interesting thing. In the end... Even that parent cannot force that child to reciprocate love, no matter what. No matter what you buy them, no matter what you give them or show them, you cannot force that child to reciprocate that love. That child in their heart may know they're loved, but they still have a choice. Do I go to dad or not? Do I involve mom in my life or not? Now, God is our father who loves us desperately, yet he will not force us. Yet... He's still given us this lamp, his word. Do you understand that? Do you connect with that? Peter, the apostle to the Jews, wrote this to Jewish believers in Jesus. They were called out of darkness into a marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9. And the same goes for us. We were called out of darkness. 2 Peter 1.19 talks about the prophetic light is a light that shines in the dark until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Jesus. That's an incredible thing. When you have Jesus in your heart and you're walking in tune with him and the word and where the Holy Spirit wants you, there's light and people will see that. Now, the interesting thing is the Jewish day begins with light and it ends with light. Did you know that? It's sunset to sunrise. And there's something incredible about that and a beautiful picture, because our day starts with light and ends in darkness. But there's an amazing picture to saturate ourselves in the light of God. 
from beginning to end. It's just light. It's darkness that's the problem. So even though God's word is a lamp, we so often decide to blow out the flame, relying on our own poor vision in the dark again and again and again. It's like your whole life is that. You you go back and forth, but you want more of God, less of me. And if you strive for the Lord, boy, you will get more light and more light and more light and more light. And it's an incredible thing. Often our mind knows the correct answer. We know that the Bible is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We believe it is the word of God and its words lead us to Christ and salvation for those who trust in him. However, it's hard to translate that into the heart, kind of like head knowledge down into the heart. We often ignore it, forget about it, read everything else but the Bible, decide to watch a film instead of communing with God, decide to go out with friends rather than study the word. I'm not saying you have to get rid of social relationships or you can't relax one time or another and watch a film, but many people, it's like the Bible on the bedstand. I'll read it tomorrow. Click the light. I'm tired. And then the next day, I'll read it tomorrow. Click. And we get into this habit. So, in closing, we need to be grounded in the word of God, which draws us deeper into the relationship with the Lord, and it equips us for whatever we face in this life. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says this, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete Thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we praise your name. We thank you. We thank you that you love us, that you're merciful, that you reach out to us. Lord God, I pray for the Burundi team, that not by their strength, but by yours, the light will go out from them throughout Burundi, the people they engage with and meet with, that there would be joy. I pray the same thing, Lord, for those of us who are here or unable to be here this morning, that that joy, that light would just radiate and attract people to them, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we would be able to speak and show love. Oh, Lord, I just ask that you would Heal our hearts. Hearts that need to be healed, Lord. Convict us, Lord, where we have stepped aside. Where we may have slandered somebody or hurt somebody or done something. Maybe we have opponents and we need to have the courage to love them. Maybe we really are an opponent to somebody else and we've suddenly realized what we did. Or or there's a habit of what we do to someone. Lord, Wash us clean, heal us, forgive us, and then give us the courage to heal those relationships where they need to be healed. And Lord, also, I just pray that when we look inwardly, and it's uncomfortable, but when we look inwardly, we realize our fallen nature. We realize that we fall short, but not by our own might, but by yours, Lord. I pray that we would be strengthened, filled with courage, seek you as our refuge, And be able to to live out our faith and go to your word and develop this as a discipline and as a habit so that we may be better. 
that we may be called sons of God, that we may strive to make you happy because of our incredible faith and humbleness and love for you. And thank you, Lord, for picking us up when we stumble. Thank you for not giving up on us or forsaking us. Lord, I just pray blessings over every single person here and their families. Bless them abundantly. Enrich their lives. Speak to them. Be their God, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you and have a wonderful week.